Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast, sponsored by WebSpy. It's February 28th, 2010, and this is episode 232. As I mentioned last week, I've teamed up with professional Australian nature photographer David Boren to host a photography expedition to South Georgia and Antarctica in November this year. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome David to the show. I'm gonna, we're going to jump into a, a Q&A session in a moment. Um, before we do that, I do want to quickly say a big thank you to our sponsors, WebSpy. I'm also really excited to tell you that WebSpy are currently giving away 100 one-year subscriptions for their upcoming new product, WebSpy Soho, and one pair of Bang & Olufsen earphones. Uh, All you have to do to be in with a chance of winning is register your interest in the product and tweet a message about the giveaway on Twitter. You can find details at www.webspy.com slash blogs. And I'll put a link directly to the post about with all of the details in the show notes. So, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Martin. Got a bit of a, a long list of stuff to talk about today, so I'm sure it's going to be interesting for the for the listeners as well. But I do have to say, you know, I'm really excited to get a chance to co-host the Photo Odyssey with you. So thanks for hooking up with me, um, you know, for this, and and I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, I'm really looking forward to get back there and getting back there with you and a whole bunch of other people will be great. Yep, for sure. So before we start answering the questions on the South Georgia and Antarctica trip, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a professional photographer uh, based in Melbourne in Australia. Uh, I started out in my photography as a bird watcher, so nature photography has always been the core of what I'm interested in. Mm. Uh, these days I do some commercial work as well. I'm also doing uh, teaching both in my own workshops and for a tertiary college in town. Okay. Uh, the stuff I'm teaching for them is largely uh, Photoshop and Lightroom and color management and digital printing. Mm. The stuff I teach in my own workshops is more about the outdoor nature photography. Okay, great. That's uh, similar to, at the moment, I'm only doing um, a couple of workshops a year, but uh, hoping to expand that, of course. But um, the mine are, are basically nature and landscape-based, so I think we're, we're pretty much um, you know, doing the same sort of thing there. So you went to Antarctica last January um, and Norway in December, you said? So, I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah, um, actually, Norway was the was uh, the completion, sort of completion of my visits to all seven continents. I've at least touched on all seven continents, but there's still a lot to see around the world. Mm. Um, beginning of last year was uh, in January. I was down in Antarctica for two weeks yeah. uh, on a ship from South America going down along the peninsula. Okay, and that was the the southern summer. So I then. See. Last December, just for something completely different, I was uh, working on a ship in Norway in the middle of winter. Oh, so wow. one one pole to another almost. Wow! So, so you say working on a ship? What was you mean? Like you were wash, uh, washing dishes? I, or? <laughs> no, no, no. I was the the artist in residence. I, I was see. Uh, teaching some photography workshops, but mainly I was there to take pretty photos of the scenery. Oh, that's cool! Amazing. So what what is it like when you you know I mean I, of course I'm this is going to be my first trip to Antarctica um 
I am obviously I'm very accustomed to shooting in cold and also in uh, in very white conditions. Um, so I've got no no worries about that. But you know, what's it going to be like shooting down there? Well, it's probably not going to be as cold as on your Hokkaido workshops, for example. Mm. Uh, we're going to be down there in summer, um, so it sh should only get to around freezing. Okay. So it's zero degrees or 32 degrees, depending on where in the world you come from. I see. And people coming from the Northern Hemisphere will probably find that it might be warmer than it is at home. I see. Yeah, for November, I guess that's so, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, with it being summertime as well, we're going to have really long nights, well, really long days as well. So what's, what's that like? Well, when we get – actually, we should probably talk before that about mm. the voyage and where we're going because the amount of light we get in different places will change a little bit. Okay. So where – Well, we start from Argentina okay. down south in Ushuaia, down the bottom tip of Argentina – Mm. And from there, uh, we're going to be spending three weeks on board a ship called the Polar Pioneer, mm. and that's operated by Aurora Expeditions. And mm. it's an they're an Australian uh, expedition cruise company. The ship's fairly small, uh, there's a total of about 54 passengers, mm. and we'll be travelling from there to the Falkland Islands, to South Georgia, down to Antarctica, and then at the end of the three weeks, we'll be back in Ushuaia. Okay. So with those 54 passengers, not all of those will be our photographers. Mm. Uh, some of those will be people doing some diving excursions and some kayaking also. I see. So they'll, will they be getting in the way or, or will they be enhancing our photographic experiences, do you think? I don't think they're going to get in our way at all. If anything, it provides a couple of extra bits of amusement to photograph. Yeah. Uh, when we're at sea, travelling from one island to another, then obviously it's hard for people to get in each other's way because the divers aren't going to be doing anything. Okay. Uh, the uh, when we're at landings, the the divers may go off to, well, presumably will go off to do their own thing. I'm not sure of their exact itinerary. Mm. But most of us will either uh, get onto uh, rubber zodiacs yeah. and be shuttled onshore where we can see wildlife, snow, the ice. Or in some locations, we stay on the little zodiacs and cruise around, for example, bays just full of icebergs. I see. The kayakers will be getting into their kayaks and pedalling off around some of those places. Yeah, and they'll only get in your, they'll only get in your way if you point your camera towards them, I suppose. Yeah, I was just just thinking, you know, if we do if we do see them, they they could add scale to a an image. You know, the, if you photograph them in front of a um, you know a, a scene, it's going to add a bit of scale. So yeah. Many of the photos I took on my last voyage, there's massive icebergs and massive mountains and snow and ice everywhere, and you're standing out there on the side of the ship photographing all this stunning scenery, and it's literally breathtaking. You're, mm. you're almost swearing at yourself, this is amazing, <laughs> yeah. as you're taking all the photos, and you come home and you show people the pictures, and unless you've taken them the right way, it's very easy to say, oh, it's just another snowy hill. Yeah, yeah. One yeah. of my photographs... 
that I'm sure you've seen, there's an enormous iceberg. And if you notice, right down the bottom, there's a little zodiac with a bunch of people standing up in the zodiac. And they're like ants down the bottom of this iceberg. Yeah, I've seen that. It's an amazing image. It's, and it does, it does give you a real sense of scale. So I guess, that, I guess we'll be able to use that, the, uh, you know, the fact that we've got the kayakers over there. Yeah, and the kayaking group and the kayaking group and our photography group, we're all working with Aurora Expeditions so that each of our needs is going to be met. It's not as though we're a bunch of photographers who happen to be on a trip that we'll be asking along the way, oh, by the way, can we go and see this? Because the expedition staff on the cruise will know that we're going to be looking for various things and they'll be working with us through the entire voyage. So. I think it will be, in fact, a lot better than uh, some of the cases where photo photographers book on these trips, pay lots of money to go on them, and then find that the ship wanted to leave or everyone was going off for dinner when they wanted to go and photograph something stunning. Mm. And if there's amazing light on the hills, in some cases, we'll be saying to people, sorry, we're going to stay out here and photograph. Yeah. It, uh, generally, the public address system is on throughout the ship so that if there's whales or something happening during the night, hmm. people get woken up. When I say the night, we'll come back to how long the days are. <laughs> um, I remember on the last voyage, there was one time where there was stunning scenery at two o'clock in the morning and I just couldn't cope with looking outside to take pictures. I was just dog tired. Hmm. But generally, when stuff happens, we're out there to take photos. If a whale comes up alongside the ship and everyone's in the middle of dinner, even if it's not an, a photography expedition, the whole place just empties and everyone goes out on deck and suddenly dinner is forgotten for a while. Yeah, well, I can imagine even if you're not a, you're a photographer, I mean, it, people just just because you're a photographer it doesn't mean you're the only one that wants to see these things. So I can I can totally understand that. It's uh, you know what I I actually I I do. I was going to say I know. Um, most of the the MVP community knows um, Graham Morgan, who's um, he's been on a couple of my Hokkaido workshops, and he also uh, put a great um, review of his Antarctica ex uh, experiences in the forum at uh, martinbaileyphotography.com as well recently. Um, but I remember when I first spoke to him about the times that he's been to Antarctica, and he said the same thing that he, they were on a boat that was. Not it wasn't a, a photography specific expedition, um, but he's said that he's never had any problems, and you get plenty of time to 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 get your photographs, and you pretty much call the shots. So, I'm um, I think we can we can you know people can rest assured that no matter no matter you know who else is on the ship with us, it's going to be a great expedition. Yes, and I I think that voyage that Graham. Uh, wrote up was actually with Aurora Expeditions, the same people we're travelling with. Right, you're right. Is that's what he was saying? Yeah, yeah. So we've got uh, we've got plenty plenty of votes of confidence there. <laughs> um, so let's see. Shall we go back to the itinerary and talk a little sure. bit about that? So on the eighth of November, so later this year, that's when we leave Oswaya. Mm. Generally, we'll be well, not just generally. You need to arrive in Ushuaia the day before. Okay, South America South being South America, sometimes the airlines, there are delays, there are flight cancellations. And if your flight is late and you miss the ship, the ship will leave without you. So for safety, everyone needs to get there the day before. Yeah, That's the general thing with all of these voyages. So okay. on the morning of the 8th, uh, 
we're going to be organising some photography activities around town. But we board the ship in the afternoon and then from then on, we're living on the ship for almost three weeks. And we we get back on the 26th of November. Okay. So once we leave Ushuaia, the the ship sails down the, the Beagle Channel and then it's evening as we're entering the ocean. Uh, we travel over to the Falkland Islands, or if you're from Argentina, you'd call it the Malvinas. Mm. And we spend a couple of days there. Okay. And there we get to see landscapes and penguins and seals. And I'm hoping to see albatrosses as well. There are some albatross rookeries there. Oh, that'll be great. Yes. Uh, and then we get to spend a couple of days at sea as we're heading even further east and heading over to South Georgia. Mm. Now, South Georgia is where there's lots and lots of wildlife. Down in Antarctica, there's penguins, there's seals, but nothing like the numbers that you get on the sub-Antarctic islands such as South Georgia. So that's where a lot of the classic uh, wildlife documentaries with Richard Atten. David Attenborough, yeah. <laughs> have been shown with the enormous uh, elephant seals on the beach yeah. challenging each other. Mm. We spend about four or five days there uh, traveling various port, various bays around the island Wow! with a couple of stops each day to head off and see things. In some cases, we're on the ship near glaciers and I'm hoping to see some uh, icebergs carving off the glaciers hopefully not too many yeah yeah but when, when they do happen they're quite stunning wow it's gonna be a sight to see for sure yeah and the largest largest penguins we see there are the king penguins okay how big so are they over a meter tall wow um, they're the second largest um, penguin species. The largest one is the emperor, mm. but we're not likely to see emperors except for maybe one or two out on the ocean or not on an ice floe somewhere. They nest a long way inland. Mm. They're the ones who stay during the winter with all the males huddled around and the eggs on the feet. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in South Georgia, the, the king... Uh, sorry. Whereas in South Georgia, the king penguins, the rookeries are all over the beach. I so see. we'll be there in November, which is essentially spring. So there'll be young chicks, there'll be adults on the same beaches. Sometimes there'll be the elephant seals, again, with the males and the females and the babies and the, the fur seals and everything. Wow. It, what, what sort of what's it going to be like? You know, how close can we get to these guys? Well, generally, you it depends on the animal, but generally the rule is you don't approach the animals closer than say five meters. Mm. But you'll find with the penguins that if you stay in the one spot, they'll just come to you. Okay, so if because, they come because you're you're a, a very interesting, strange animal, and and especially for the babies, they'll sometimes wander up to you and stand on your boots, and if you lie down, they'll walk all over you and say, "Oh, this is interesting." <laughs> so, so there's no you haven't got to like run out of the way and maintain the five meters. Then, as long as you don't go closer than five meters, it's okay if they come to you. There needs to be some a little bit of sensibleness there. If it's a 
large seal that is coming towards you, yeah. often they're coming towards you because you're being a problem. You might be between them and the water. I see. Uh, if they feel threatened, they can attack and not at this location, but I am aware of a story at another island where uh, people have been killed by the elephant seals, the large male adult elephant. Okay. Elephant seals are like four tons. They're yeah. enormous animals. <laughs> but generally, those things are big enough that most people will give them a wide berth anyway. And the right. the crew of the ship are very much uh, keeping an eye on everyone, making sure everyone's a safe distance. We're not just left to our own because if something happened to us, then there would be hell to pay for everyone. Yeah, so I uh, guess I guess they, they're giving us instruction on, on how to sort of you know how to behave and and when to maybe not watching our every move, but um, you know so they'll they'll tell us you know if if you know we're going to go down to a beach where or somewhere where there's some you know some danger possibly dangerous situations they'll tell us that in advance I would imagine. Yeah, and if it's too dangerous, they'll just simply keep us away. I see. Uh, sometimes the danger is animals. Sometimes the danger is weather. When mm. we go to land, then typically the first. Zodiac that heads off to the beach doesn't actually have any passengers on it. It's just got the emergency food supplies and emergency shelter mm. because it has happened before that the weather has turned while everyone's been on shore and it's suddenly become so rough that you can't make it back to the ship and I you see. have to wait on shore for a day or two. So they're very big on all the safety aspects. Mm. Before we get to the islands, there's all sorts of safety briefings, our clothes, our camera gear, well, the camera bags and so on all get vacuumed, so we're not introducing uh, seeds and any other introduced species to the islands or to Antarctica. Mm, that's they're, important. They're very big on all the conservation aspects. I see. Uh, you do need to be careful with the smaller seals as well on the beach. Sometimes the fur seals um, get a little bit boisterous, yeah. and if they bite you, they, they can get quite infected bites. I see. It all sounds a bit scary, but as long as it's sensible, <laughs> yeah. it's an amazing experience and plenty safe. Well, I, th I think that's it. You said earlier, um, that, you know, the main thing is common sense. If once you've had your your briefings and you keep all of that in mind, um, then a, a good dose of common sense is going to keep most people out of uh, out of harm's way. So, um, and it's it's you know, in some ways, it is an adventure holiday. So you can expect to have to um, put up with some risk, but it's uh, it's going to be great. I'm, I know that I'm I'm not scared in the least, um, but obviously uh, keeping your wits about you and making sure that you stay out of harm's way is an important thing. Yeah, and also there'll be multiple people on the beach. Sometimes it's a little bit of a a struggle to try and make sure that you don't have someone in a bright parka in the background of your of your shot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, sometimes you actually want some context, but sometimes those get in the way. Yeah, I see. But, it, it is always good to have other people with you because sometimes if you've got your eye up to the camera and you're concentrating on the seal right in front of you and maybe you're lying down, you're getting this amazing shot, it's helpful to have someone behind you to kick you in the boot and say, you better move out of the way, something's about to squash you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a seal that looks like it's heading this way. I've, I've got some video footage I was taking in Argentina with my 5D Mark II and, and there's elephant seals on the beach and I'm watching this thing, I've got the camera set up on the tripod, mm. I'm sitting down behind it and I'm videoing, and then across the audio comes a voice saying, 
whispering, saying, we better move, there's something coming towards us. And I looked up into my left and we were right where a seal wanted to be. So we uh -huh. just picked up and <laughs> skedaddled out of there. Yeah, yeah. Ruined the I audio, but never mind. <laughs> well, it, I guess uh, you can you can always try and reshoot, but <laughs> not if you're dead. Um, okay, that's... that's... So, so once yeah. we leave South Georgia... Mm. Uh, we then spend a little bit more time at sea and we head down to the South Orkneys. Basically, we're heading southwest down towards the Antarctic Peninsula. Okay. Uh, the South, South Orkneys is another group of islands, which is, again, quite stunning, uh, volcanic islands. I haven't been to those islands, so I'm not sure exactly what we'll see there, but I have seen a few photos and know that it's going to be impressive. Yeah. A little bit after that, we get down to the South Shetland Islands, which are just on the edge of the Antarctic Peninsula. And there there's Deception Island, which is a large active volcano where the caldera of the volcano is actually flooded and the ship sails inside the volcano. It last erupted in 1969, I think. Okay. And there's old whaling station there that's mostly covered up with volcanic ash. Wow. There's more penguin rookeries, all sorts of things there. So that's a place that we visit on the way. We tend not to stay there for too long, but there are monitoring stations around, so they won't actually go in if it's about to erupt. <laughs> well, that's, that's slightly comforting. Yes, um, good. Might, might make for some good photographs. but. <laughs> <laughs> and we spend a couple more days exploring the Antarctic Peninsula. Okay. Uh, we do get to actually get out and walk on the Antarctic continent. So if you're big on being able to tick the box to say you visited Antarctica, you'll be able to do that. Wow. And then after all that, we spend a couple more days heading back north over the Drake Passage. Uh, and if the weather's good, we might actually see uh, the Cape, Cape at the bottom of South America oh, before wow. we head into uh, Ushuaia. So, and you'll be pretty exhausted at the end of that. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what what sort what's it going to be like? You know, because we've got these really long days. How do you regulate how much shooting you do and how much sleeping you do, or or you know, how do you sort of? Because uh, I, I know that power. it's going to be difficult. Willpower. Will <laughs> uh, when when we're at South Georgia, we'll have the sun's going to be in the sky for about sixteen hours. Okay. But when the sun sets, it doesn't go far below the horizon, so there'll still be a glow in the sky. Mm. When we get down to Antarctica, we'll be further south mm. and the sun will set for about five hours. Mm. So that means it's in the sky for about 19 hours and it won't really get dark at all. Even though we won't be below the Antarctic Circle, we won't have 24 hours of sun. We will have 24 hours of daylight. I see. Unless the clouds come in and it'll get a little bit darker then, but yeah. it'll be bright all the time. And I found when I've been there before that you work through the day, you photograph all the things that you see. You might go out for a landing at maybe 5 o'clock in the morning, go mm. out in the zodiacs on shore maybe for a couple of hours, mm. come back, have breakfast, maybe another landing in the middle of the day at another bay somewhere further around, and then mm. another landing after dinner. I see. So it's it's sort of really regulating. Do you, do you, do you sleep between those or do you just, well, do you just not sleep? <laughs> Some people uh, have used the phrase previously, you can sleep when you're dead. Uh, <laughs> but of, often if you can find a time to sleep during what seems to be a downtime, just grab an hour or, or two hours of sleep, then mm. that can help you. 
power along because when it gets along to 10 o'clock at night or 11 o'clock at night and the sun's hitting the horizon and we've got the what's normally an hour or so we normally hear about the golden hour of sun at each end of the day this is like the golden hours yeah sun just slowly slowly sets yeah and literally goes on for hours and the light is amazing i've taken wonderful photos with sun shining on the clouds at 1am in the morning mm, wow generally i found it about that time i just said right that's it i'm giving up i'm going to sleep and i get up again in the morning mm. and there were a couple of times in the middle of the night where uh, we had announcements from the crew saying there was amazing scenery. Mm. And at least one of those times I looked out the porthole and said, hi, oh, it is amazing, but I'm going back to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't photograph everything, but it is very, very tempting at times. There's just, there's something else happening. There's something else happening. Yeah, but there is amazing. so much happening on these trips that you just have to pull the pin at some point and say, I'm going to sleep. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm with you. So um, it, will there be any, um, like, Aurora or anything like that? Uh, you know, we're, we're way down south. Uh, not really because it will be so light. I see. Strictly speaking, there may be Aurora happening up there, but we won't see them because of the light. In December, up in Norway, that's one of the reasons I went there. We had the northern lights. Oh, okay. But, it, but I was up there on the shortest day of the year. It's dark, so you can actually see the lights. In summer, not really going to see them. Okay. The southern lights... You can see at the right time of the year from places a little bit further north, such as Ushuaia or southern Australia sometimes, if they're really strong. Oh, I see. New Zealand. But generally, if you want to go down to Antarctica to see the southern lights, you have to stay there all winter. Ah, uh, okay. Because <laughs> once you're down there, it, it ices in and you're not getting out again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun, actually. Um, okay, so... Let's see. What else can we? Um, how about seasickness? Are people going to be? Um, you know, because I can imagine on those those days when we're or the long spells where we're at sea, people are going to be susceptible to seasickness. What can you do about that? Well, it really depends on each person. Um, hmm. On the sea days where we're going from island to island or from uh, between Antarctica and South America. That, that is some of the roughest ocean in the world. And mm. yes, it, pretty much everyone will notice the motion of the ocean. Okay. Now, different people react to it in different ways. Mm. There are drugs you can take. Mm. Uh, there are, some of them are tablets, some of them are little patches behind the ear that you wear for a couple of days. Mm. Some people find the bracelets that press the acupuncture points work for them. Sometimes find, some mm. people find chewing ginger works. Mm. But on those rougher bits, some people just find that, no, nothing's really working for them, so they'll go and lie down in the cabin. I see. And generally, if you go and lie down and have your eyes closed, mm. you feel fine. Oh, okay. If you're suffering from motion sickness, it's usually because your brain is getting confused between your inner ear saying you're moving mm. and your vision saying everything's staying still. I see. So trying to read a book when you're lying down generally makes it worse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sometimes audiobooks work well. You can just plug yourself into your iPod and listen to stuff while you're lying there thinking, I don't really want to get up. I see, yeah. When we, when we get close to land again and we get into more sheltered water, pretty much everyone recovers very quickly and is up and about and photographing things. But you'll notice the difference when we go back out on the open ocean again. I see. I, I find I've got some drugs that work for me. 
Mm. Um, and I cope fine with all the, the motion. Some people find they have to lie down all the time. Mm. It's going to be different for everyone. So I, there is a little, little bit of a compromise. My wife wants to come back to South Georgia, but she's saying, yeah, but there's a lot of sea time. I'll be lying there reading. Mm. It's a little bit of a compromise. She hasn't quite decided what she wants to do. Mm-hmm. And I imagine then the, the, the advice here would be for people to go to their doctors and and get something prescribed before they t- before they come. Um, yeah. Can, can, We're not can, in a position to give people medical advice, obviously, and right. we'll fall back on the ask your doctor. Yeah. Uh, but you can always uh, find out what's worked for other people and talk to your doctor about those. Yeah. And so we'll, 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 we'll... Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, information about all this sort of detail, when we're getting ready to travel, we're planning to distribute a lot of this information to the people who sign up. Okay, that's good. So, so there'll be information about what's worked for other people. And sometimes some of these drugs are a little bit hard to track down. And I found on previous trips that uh, people were comparing their doctor's opinions. The doctors might, might not like this, but when you come <laughs> along to your doctor with this couple of printouts saying, oh, this doctor said this works and this doctor said this works. And then your doctor says, oh, yes, that's because that person has this medical condition. Mm. It, it's useful to have the medical opinion. It's also useful to actually hear from other people what's worked for them because everyone is slightly different. Mm, okay, got you. So well, when we're preparing, um, how much do you think we'll shoot? How much memory do we need? Or, you know, obviously I, I, memory cards for the whole trip is not going to work, but what sort of, you know, what, have you got any advice around that? How, what, how many images do you think we'll shoot out there? Well, how many you're going to shoot and how much storage you need really depend on your camera and how large your files are. Mm. On on my last trip, which was two weeks, I took about 13,000 photos. Oh, just 13,000? Yeah, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the other people I was with took about half that. Uh, I was not the person who took the most photos. Mm. Uh, I was up, up towards the top, I think. <laughs> um, now, a lot of those... Uh, photos that just didn't work. Mm. Uh, some of them are stunning scenery in front of you. I, I find when I'm photographing landscapes, I set up the camera on the tripod mm. a, and I get everything sorted out and I take photos. And these days I'm taking more photos when I'm bracketing exposures and mm. doing panoramas. Mm. But I typically come back with much fewer photos than if I'm off photographing wildlife where suddenly everything's moving and every different position is a different photo. Yeah. yeah. When you're on a ship and you're sailing past scenery, mm. the scenery is changing all the time. Yeah. So I'd, I'd be taking landscape photos, but you take a picture of this iceberg in front of this mountain and a second later, the whole perspective has changed. So there's yeah. more, more scenery all the time. So there's so many photos to take. I see. So... Uh, so Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you, you mentioned um, shooting with a tripod. Uh, I guess that's when you're on land, right? Not rather than on the sea. The tripod isn't a lot of use on the ship because right. the ship is moving around a bit. Right. It's, it is useful to have one on land for when you're doing some panoramas and maybe some HDRs. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people end up not taking one or take a monopod. Mm. That can work quite well. Um, I take a small carbon fiber tripod. Last time I took a big one partly because I was traveling to a few other places than just Antarctica on that voyage. Yeah. Uh, my tripod is a, a tall so similar to yours that I can stand up behind. I'm about six foot four. Okay. 
but on the next voyage I'm taking something smaller because it'll just be easier to throw in the bag and take on shore. I see, I see. Okay, that's cool. I'm, I'm just talking about it. I'm getting even more excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's see. What sort of storage then? I know that it, it does vary based on your yep. um, on your camera, but roughly what would you say people are going to need? Well, if you take... I thought about it a couple of ways last time I was going. I, I thought, how many photos am I likely to take? How many photos have other people who've been on similar voyages taken and did some sums and worked out, well, each of my raw files is about this big. Mm. Do all the maths and work out how large everything might be and then double it or triple it for a, a bit of a safety margin. It gets even harder these days because if you're recording video. Yeah, video's big. That, that expands as well, but I'm shooting at the moment with a Canon 7D and a 5D Mark II, mm. and essentially each photo I take on those cameras is about 25 megabytes. Yeah, yeah. So everything adds up fairly quickly. I'm planning to take at least 500 gigabytes of storage, mm. and they, these days that's just a single drive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you also need to take backups. For sure. If I, yeah. if I was taking a 500 gigabyte drive, I would take a second one and I have my workflow set up with Lightroom on the laptop so that when I take the photos, copy them onto the first hard drive, they also get copied to the second one. Yeah. And then when I'm traveling, if I'm traveling with a partner to the same destination, we'll swap hard drives so that I've got one of my hard drives and my traveling companion has the other and vice versa so that if one of our bags gets lost, yeah. we haven't lost everything. Right, right. I, I usually, even if I'm traveling alone, I, I always make sure that I have... Um, two two backups, two hard drives with at least you know everything on in two places, and then I I'll sort of I'll keep one in my pocket. If I leave one in my room, I'll keep one in my pocket at all time, and um, and then just even during the the, the travel back, um, if I can't get it in someone else's pocket, then I'll I'll always try to keep them at least separate. Um, but the, yeah, definitely having two backups and not just one because everyone knows that. A, a hard a hard disk um, can fail, uh, so there's well no hard, hard disks will, will fail. fail. It's just a yeah. question of when. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And that's really only one backup because once you've copied it off to that hard drive and then it's been backed up onto the other one, you're going to want to format the memory card. Right. Generally, I'm working these days with a mixture of four gig, eight gig, and sixteen gig mm. uh, compact flash cards, mm. and I'm basically wanted to make sure that I've got enough to get me through at least this landing. When you go on shore for a couple of hours, you want to make sure that you're not going to run out of card space when you're away. Yeah. If the worst comes to the worst, when you, if you're almost full, you get back to the ship, the first thing you do, you go back to your cabin, plug the cards into your laptop and tell it to start copying. Yeah. And yeah. then you go and have lunch or do whatever you're going to do and the cards are being copied. Mm. Often at that point, you want a spare card to put back in your camera so you can at least have your camera with you if something happens. Mm. So you don't need enough flashcards to last the entire voyage, just maybe half a day or a day. Right. And just yep. make sure you have enough storage. Yep. Good advice. So uh, do, do you review your images on the you know during the voyage as well, or do you have time to do that? Yes. Uh, but when... You don't want to be working too much on the computer when the ship's moving. But yeah. at, at night, in the evening, uh, before dinner or after dinner, there are lots of opportunities to sit down, 
review your photos. And you, you want to do that every day to work out what went wrong because something will have gone wrong sure. so that you can improve it the next day. Sure, yeah. I, I found on some other trips where I – and there was a trip a couple of years ago. We were bicycling and I didn't take a laptop. I just took external hard drives with battery backup that could back up the memory cards onto the external drives and that was fine. I had backups, two mm. copies of each of the files when I got home but I hadn't reviewed the photos and there were so many pictures that I looked at later and said, well, if I'd known it was exactly like that, I would have changed things the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I, I use Lightroom on my laptops. I teach uh, Lightroom and I use Lightroom in my own work. Mm. Uh, and on the last voyage, I came back with most of my images uh, rated and mm. keyworded um, and I then went through everything on my larger screen at home that was properly color balanced and yeah. actually checked everything. But I had most of the work already sorted. I could say, all right, show me all of my iceberg pictures or my penguin pictures and yeah. not have to drill through each day's work. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's some of the stuff that we'll be showing people how to do. That's, so, that's good. So we, we'll have Photoshop and Lightroom on our laptops. I've got Macintosh. I think I've you're got, using Windows laptops. Yeah, I've got Windows. Yep. Uh, I also use things like Photomatics uh, for some HDR work and some other panorama programs as well. Yeah. So if people are interested in those, we can give them some extra tuition in those. Yeah, sure. But part of what I'm keen on showing people is how the workflow works for me when I'm at sea and how they can put that to use for them. Yeah. I uh, I found that people were interested in that. Um, you know, when you've got a laptop with you, people do seem to be interested in that. And even if um, you know we don't have anything super, super miraculous workflow tips, it's it's often good to to watch what other people do. And you know, you can always learn from other people's workflows. So definitely, we'll be sharing that. And pulling the pictures up on your laptop, you'll be able to review your own work, but you'll also get be able to get people like ourselves to look at your photographs and give you feedback. Right. That's if right. you want it. If you don't want to show us anything, then that, that's your prerogative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've found that as well. Um, that's really cool. So what sort of, you know, we're talking, you know, gear. We've got um, laptops with us. Uh, hopefully most people will be able to take a, lap take a laptop, some backup um, hard drives. Um, what sort of camera gear do we, do we need to take? Oh, I've mentioned what I'm taking for my SLRs, a 7D and a 5D Mark II. Yeah. Most people on trips like this have at least one SLR. Mm. You'll want a second camera. If you're travelling to the ends of the world and something happens to your camera, you'll be bummed. Yeah. If something's happened to your camera, you can't take any more photos. For some people, they take an SLR and a compact camera, and that's their last resort backup. Yeah. Uh, I think most people will probably end up taking two SLRs, maybe their normal one and a small light backup in the Canon series. It might be one of the Rebels or something in the hundreds yeah. series. And having a second camera as a backup is useful if something happens to you first, but it's also useful so that you can have two lenses on a telephoto and a wide angle and sure. not have to switch lenses all the time. It yeah. really depends on how each person wants to work. Yeah. 
I uh, I think with the with the subject as well. But sometimes, if you're just doing landscapes, one camera is usually enough. But if you're if you're shooting wildlife, um, it's it's pretty common practice to have two cameras with you. Um, yeah. It, even shoot, shooting the landscapes from the ship. Mm. Oh, um, from the some, ship. Some, yeah. Sometimes I'll be standing out on deck, so I'm I'm rugged up. I've got my um, windproof jacket over the top, um, gloves on, balaclava. Uh, fairly normal leggings with thermal um, long johns on underneath to keep my legs warm. Mm. I'm standing out there for a while photographing, and I'll have a camera maybe with the 17 to 40 mil lens, mm. another one with either 24 to 105 or a 100 to 400. Because mm. sometimes you want the wide angle, yeah. and then you'll notice something over on a hillside or an iceberg, a little detail that would make a good photo by itself. Yeah. And you can make amazing landscape pictures with telephotos, as, oh, for sure. as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I was thinking more of the the pace. Um, you know, when I said landscape, I was thinking more of the pace being a little bit sort of slower. You know, maybe working from a, a beach with a tripod, but it's it's going to be a different style of photography when when shooting from the the deck of, of the ship. So I can see what you're saying there. You know, you, you you're still going to want to be able to easily get from a telephoto to a wide angle. And you know, and not have to change lenses. So yeah, that's a, a good point. As far as uh, which lenses people might want to take, the, the widest lens that I've been taking is a 17 mil. Mm. Um, the longest lens that I take is the 100 to 400 mil. But if you had something like a 70 to 200 mil, mm. that's probably going to be enough telephoto. Mm. When we're on the, on the beach, the animals are right in front of you and you don't really need a telephoto lens. Yeah, yeah. When, I, when we're when we're beside whales, the whales are beside the ship. Again, a telephoto lens is sometimes too tight. Yeah, I uh, I'm I still haven't really thought about what I'm going to take, but I, <laughs> I I've got I, I will probably I'll have a seventy to two hundred, um, and I'll probably throw the three hundred millimeter f two eight in my bag as well. But um, I definitely won't be taking anything longer than that. Yeah, the I guess the an extender as well, um, especially if you if you are only going with a seventy to two hundred, it's probably going to be enough. But if you want to pick out a part of a scene, um, then you know maybe maybe a one point four times it, extender it as well. Certainly wouldn't hurt to throw a one point four in the bag. Yeah, yeah. Also, also it doesn't take up much room. You say put the three hundred two point eight in the bag. Yeah. You, you need to think about how much stuff you're going to be carrying when you're on shore. But the other thing you need to worry about is you need to fly with all this stuff down to South America. Right, right. <laughs> I, uh, and, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, that, and that generally means that all your lenses, your cameras, uh, your hard drives, your laptop, all that stuff needs to be in your check-in, like your carry-on luggage. Yeah. And that does place limits on how much stuff you can take. You can't bring a 600 mil and a 500 mil. Not that you'd want to, because they'd be too long. Yeah. But you can't just throw all your camera gear in and expect to be able to get it on the plane. Right. Right. Um, I I've been um, I've been using the uh, the Gura Gear uh, Kiboko bags recently because they they've got you know you can get a lot of gear in there, um, and that will sh- surely be enough for me. I won't have to do much. Um, juggling around this you know for this trip uh, if if the longest i'm taking is a 300 you can get a 600 a 300 and some bodies and other lenses into that bag um which is really amazing but i i will be um a little bit uh, less i mean like, like to go to hokkaido this year i actually had uh, 
I had my 600, 300 in, the, in there. I had two bodies. I actually had a third body in a, a pouch over, over my backside. And I, so I, I couldn't sit down without having to sort of you know, take my jacket off. Um, I was doing, I'd got gear all over me to get up there. But, yeah, that, that, yeah, that's one of the other things I'm expecting to be able to provide feedback for people on as we're approaching the trip as to how to get your stuff onto the planes yeah. and over there because it's going to depend on different airlines. They each have different limits. Yeah. Some of them you're allowed one carry-on bag. Some of them you're allowed two. Right. I haven't had a problem traveling with all my gear all around the world. It's just work out a system, be prepared mm. for what's going to happen if someone says, how heavy is that bag? Yeah, yeah. Which is basically have something with a lot of pockets. Yeah. I uh, I generally, um, I try to keep under the limits, but um, it's, it's almost impossible. It is. It, it, and when, you, when you're traveling with a lot of gear, um, but for sure, you know, wearing, as I've, I've heard on a number of podcasts, um, you know, wearing your gear is, is certainly a one way of doing it. I, that's what I do now. I, my, my vest is often heavier than my bag these days. Um, but I think the main point here is because we know what we're going to be shooting, we probably can limit what we're going to take a little bit more than we might do if we were going on a trip where we, we had no idea what we were going to come up against. So, you know, being a little bit sort of intelligent on what you take with you and how you take it. And, and like you say, we'll, we'll be helping people with that as we get closer to the leaving date. So it's all, yeah, it so all sounds good. So we talked about cameras and lenses. Yep. Um, often a pocket camera is useful as well for those times you don't actually have your big camera with you. Mm. As far as filters, it's the normal filters. Polarizers are definitely useful. Uh, ND filters can be useful. Mm. It's all fairly normal in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So um, what sort of clothing do you take? You, how I know that it's going to be like down to around freezing. Um, What's what sort of things do we need to keep in mind with, with regards to clothing? Well, you want to be able to be comfortable inside, mm. in, inside the ship. Yeah. And generally, you could be wearing t-shirt and jeans. Ah, uh, okay. But when there's something to photograph outside, and you're going outside where it's about zero degrees, and maybe there's some wind, you want something that's going to keep the wind off. Yeah. I have uh, gloves, which are fingerless gloves with uh, flip-over mittens. Mm. They work very well. I can get my fingertips out and use the camera gear. Yeah. Sometimes I'm wearing thinner gloves inside that just to keep my fingers warm. Mm. Did find on my last trip that made it a bit hard to use the iPhone, but ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, some warm scarf to keep your head warm. A jacket to keep the wind off is the main thing. Okay, so. Rather than cold, it's wind and rain that's the biggest thing, yeah? Yeah. When we go off the landings, then the ship is supplying everyone with the loan of rubber boots. So those, those come most of the way up your calf so that when you get to shore and you're getting off the Zodiac, often you'll be stepping into shallow water at the beach and then walking up the last bit of the beach. I see. And those things are felt lined. They keep your feet fairly warm. I see. Uh, the things that... You need to have uh, layers to keep your legs warm, waterproof mm. overpants. Mm. And that's not just to keep any rain or water off, it's also to keep the penguin poo off. <laughs> because yeah. if that stuff gets on your clothes, it will stink your cabin out. Oh, I, uh, <laughs> I, I had a, um, a pigeon that had obviously been eating a lot of fish <laughs> food. <or> fish. <laughs> I had a pigeon crap on my head in Hokkaido this year, and it, that was stunk. It was, <laughs> it was pretty nasty. 
Um, but those guys, that you know, that's all they eat. I can imagine that's pretty fierce if you get some of that on you. Yeah, you can generally smell the penguin colonies before you see them. <laughs> <laughs> you get uh, used to it. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that as well. It is. It is a smell that you remember, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on your on the bag, um, you does, does the bag need to be waterproof, uh, weatherproof, or you know, how, how do we need uh, rain- camera bags? Yeah. Uh, well, generally, uh, the most water that we get would be maybe some spray, sea spray, maybe while we're moving from the ship to shore on the zodiacs. Okay. And if you're completely paranoid, a plastic garbage bag to cover your camera gear would do. Yeah. But for a lot of people, just the the AW, the all weather uh, wrap from the low pro bags, is yeah. enough to keep that stuff off. Okay. If, if it starts raining, which it's more likely to do further north yeah. at the islands than it is down in Antarctica itself. Mm. If it's raining again, that rain cover is enough. I have a a waterproof duffel bag that I can throw my backpack and a few other things in and seal it up and put it in the bottom of the Zodiac to take on shore. Mm. But there's not really that much room in the Zodiacs. If everyone, if everyone wanted to bring one of those, it would be a little bit cramped. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. <laughs> You, you do find that at the beginning of the trip, people are fairly paranoid about the water, but then by about halfway through, a lot of people are on the Zodiacs traveling from the ship to shore, and they've got their cameras out because there's penguins swimming along and jumping out of the water mm. as the Zodiac's zooming along. People get more comfortable with it, and they'll be shooting things as they go along. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. I... Uh... The, like I say, the more we talk about this, the more excited I get. Um, the, the camera the camera bag that I'm using for those is a, a Slingshot 300, the mm-hmm. low-pro Slingshot, mm-hmm. and that works for me because I can have a camera with the 100 to 400 on, and as long as I take the hood off, I can just slide that straight in the side. I can get gear in and out of it without having to put it down. Mm-hmm. And that's worked well for me. That's the backpack that I use out in the field. When it comes to shipping things on the plane, that bag actually gets filled up with things like the tripod head and battery charges and other stuff and ends up in the middle of my duffel bag that I check in. I see, yeah. And I have a separate bag that I use for transporting all my gear on flights that doesn't really get used out in the field. I'm with you. I'm with you. Sounds like good advice. (laughs) So um, let's see. What? Just sort of as we start to wrap up here, I guess you know we mentioned earlier that we'll be we'll be talking about workflow and stuff like that. Um, we we'd also spoke spoken um, a, a month or so ago about uh, you know white balance and those sort of things. It, what what sort of um, other digital photography sort of tips and things do you think we're going to be um, you know talking about while we're out there? Well, the the workflow. In terms of taking photos and then feeding them through Lightroom or Aperture or whatever you're using, you and I will be using Lightroom, I expect, is fairly important for most people. And that reaches out to everything else in terms of taking white balance measurements out in the field so that you can process your photos and get the color that you're expecting. Mm. That's extended these days because we've got things like the color checker passports and we can get customized lighting profiles for each case. Right. And again, there's hooks into Lightroom to do that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, I record GPS trails of 
where we go, and I again use a plugin in Lightroom to geo encode all of my photos. Oh, you can do that in Lightroom. I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm doing all of that from within Lightroom. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, the color, the white balance, the the camera raw processing. Mm. Uh, generally, it's worthwhile for a lot of people going through and reviewing that stuff because a lot of people, even if they've been reading tutorials on the web and working by themselves, it's very easy to forget about this extra feature that suddenly makes your life so much easier. So some review sessions of that I'm hoping to, to go through. Okay. On the ship, there's a lecture program and some of that's filled up with the safety briefings. There's some Antarctic information. There's naturalists on board who'll be giving us information. Mm. But you and I have some slots being set aside for us so that we can give some seminar presentations to our group. Right. And we'll also be doing instruction out in the field alongside people. So if we're standing alongside people, they can see how we're working. We can give them advice on how they're working. Yeah. That's a little bit more informal than standing up in front of people, but there'll be both. Yeah. Yep. Looking forward to it. <laughs> So, um, you know, we're coming up to an hour, David. That I guess oh, we, we can... Time flies. Uh, it sure does. Um, I guess we'll start to think about wrapping it up there. Um, what I did want to do is to tell everybody that, uh, you know, you can... If, obviously, we've only touched on a, on a number of areas here. If you're interested in coming along and you, you still have questions, then I guess the first port of call would be would be to go over to the antarctica2010.com website and uh, you know all one word antarctica2010.com and you can also there's a contact form on that website that you can drop us a, a line from that the mail will go to both myself and david and also you can email us directly on info at antarctica2010.com that that's antarctica2010.com yeah Right. So, uh, <laughs> so, and you know, any if anyone has any additional questions, please do just uh, let us know, and we'll we'll get back to you. Um, but really, that's that's about it. Let's wrap it up there for today. And um, we, uh, it it really has been been great talking to you, David. And and I think that uh, it's going to be helpful for anyone that's thinking about the trip, and hopefully interesting for for those listeners that aren't thinking about the trip but still interested in what we're doing. So thanks a lot, David. Thank you. And I, I look forward to any more questions that people can come up with. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So just a reminder then, I'll be back next week with another episode of the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. And in the meantime, you, uh, David, and the rest of the people listening, have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye. This is Dave Warner, and I'm the host of the LensFlare35.com podcast. Each week I bring you interviews with some of the top photographers using digital SLR cameras. They share some of their coolest tips and tricks, techniques and news about what they're up to. So please take a moment to visit the website or subscribe to LensFlare35 on iTunes. The Martin Bailey Photography Podcast is a proud member of the Photocast Network. Find this and other great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com.